approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. How are you, Bill? I'm doing good. How are you? You know, usually I say I'm doing good and I'm excited for today's episode. And usually that's true. I'm going to be honest, though, and say today I'm okay. I'm okay. Yeah. This is a podcast where we talk about what is honestly being, what is honestly like being a human. And what it's like being a human for me right now is that I got knee surgery last week, which you understand. You've had a couple of the same surgery. And I'm experiencing something called opioid constipation, if you know what that is. I don't. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's been about eight days, (laughs) and I am full of crap. Yeah. Is where I'm at. Normally, you're not full of shit, but today you are. Today, I honestly am. But you know what? This is a podcast where we talk about what it's like being a human, and sometimes it's poop-related, and that's just what it's like sometimes. So I'm okay. I'm hanging in there. I crutched myself up the stairs for this podcast for the first time in a week, and I am excited. I am, though, genuinely excited about today's episode. Good. And I'm, you know, you picked this one, and you put a bunch into the outline. You really prepared a bunch, and... I went over the whole thing, made a few notes, and I just found all of these so interesting in that there really is about 90% of these have significant overlap to the point where I could almost say that I believe all of them, even though they they would be, on, on some level, they would be argued as being contradictory to each other. Yeah. And, and, and I don't know that they are. So we'll, yeah. we'll see how That's funny that you say that because when I was teaching government, when I was explaining different political isms or parties that you could be a part of, you know, you did your job right when the kids are like, oh, they all kind of have a good point. Like yeah. I kind of see the truth that they're, you know, and you make it at least a little bit hard for them. And that means that you did a good job. If it's easy to choose one, well, then maybe you didn't like explain it as well as you could have. Anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, so we'll jump into it. And by the way, this episode was inspired by a listener. So if you are the listener, I should have looked it up before the episode. But if you are the listener that was like, I'm really interested in like what else is out there, specifically Taoism, this this listener was interested in. And it just gave me the idea that, yeah, let's talk about isms. So you leave a certain religion or maybe you were brought up secular and you just want to know like what are all the kind of options of how people are seeing the world and so i just kind of grabbed i don't know 20 isms that are compelling to people and we'll just talk about it and see like what about it resonates with you and what doesn't yeah, and so yeah fun. this is from a listener so if you're that listener this episode is for you and so keep e- emailing us those ideas because we really do take them seriously 
All right, so yeah, let's go. So the first question, the first isms, I kind of clumped these into groups. And so the first set is really about, is there a God? And so your theism, your deism, your atheism, and your agnosticism. And there's different, even under those categories, like there's different ways to look at this. And, you know, just like any ism, it may not perfectly describe you, but at least it may give some, you some language for where you're at in your faith journey or where you're at in your, you know, religious journey. So the first one is just your classic theism, which is belief in a supreme being, one supreme entity, creator of the universe, intervenes, has a personal relationship with humans. This would include the three Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. You want my thoughts already? Yeah. Uh -huh. I don't really have anything else to say. I, I, I feel like people are most familiar with this one, right? Yeah. It, you know, we're conscious beings, or at least the illusion of consciousness. Um, I've been kind of wrestling with some uh, books and, and programs that are kind of fiddling with whether, because again, we did the free will. Now the next step is, is consciousness real or not? And, and once you, you know, if you're in your head thinking you're a conscious being, which again, up until the modern scientific moment, that wouldn't have even been debatable, but we're conscious beings and, or at least the illusion of consciousness. And so the idea that, um, that we're trying to wrestle with, like, where did we come from? Where did consciousness come from? Where, why are we here? Where are we going? The three questions that, you know, the faith we came from really tries to, to tackle those three questions have plagued human beings forever and placing placing the outer authority of the supreme being and having that whatever that is also be a conscious person i think plays at least a part in this um yeah it like it fills that hole it fills that gap we just it's a placeholder like there's some questions here god yeah you just put it there and we'll get into other ones where you know maybe there's lots of gods maybe there's one god but in this particular instance here's this at least there's this one main supreme being he's above everyone else all the other gods all the other humans all the other life forms he's conscious and he's he's kind of dealing with things and 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 you know setting forth some way in which we're supposed to interact with him yeah and the two big um critiques of theism has always been the problem of evil right so if god is if God is good and all powerful and can intervene, then just, you know, childhood cancer, like why, you know, so it's that. And then the other one is um, when you put God into that space, right? And you're like, oh, we answered those questions because we just put God there, right? Well, then, you know, how did God get there? And then you get this uh, regression because you can't still answer the question, even if you put God there. Um, you still have to kind of define, well, then how did God come to be and, and, or is God just a part of the universe and are we a part of the universe in the same way? So you're still stuck with the question, even with God there. And so those are kind of the two, um, like across history kind of critiques. And then today, you know, it's a lot more about individual critiques with the specific religion of Christianity or the specific religion of Islam. So, but still very popular, Islam especially, still growing, right? Still how a lot of our neighbors really see the world. You know, it's a pretty big ism. That's like half the world right there is that ism of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Yeah. 
So the next one is deism, which is really interesting and not talked about a lot. Like if someone were to say, I'm a deist, you would probably have to like explain what that meant. But it was really, really popular in the, six, in the 17th and 18th century. And so deists insisted that religious truth should be subject to um, humans and reason rather than divine revelation. So they rejected the Bible as the word of God, rejected supernaturalism and superstition, miracles, prophecy. People like Ben Franklin were doing, they were doing experiments essentially like, okay, you say that this person is um, plagued by a demon. Like I'm going to do some experiments on this and finding some holes, right? And so for deists, they, they did believe in a God still, but it was like nature or it was a distant creator um, who wasn't really involved in human affairs. And it was really, really popular, especially with the founding fathers. So John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Paine. Um, you can be a Christian deist, which I think is what Thomas Jefferson was. You believe in the moral teachings of Jesus, but not in the divinity of Jesus. You can be an a-deist and not just an atheist, which means you don't believe in a creator of any kind. Um, and yeah, this, this one was really popular when in the 17th and 18th century, you know, reason, the enlightenment, they're starting to critique religion and God, but they still felt like there was enough argument there that there's still something there. Um, and so it's hard to say whether like Thomas Jefferson today would have been an atheist knowing what we know now. I don't know if we can say that. I think it'd be projection if I were to say that. Anyway, thoughts on deism. It feels like it solves a separate set of problems. In other words, when you're when you're examining whether there's a God or not, you run into certain barricades. And um, if you want certain, if you want your religion to be true, then you need God to be personal and to be interactive with you. But there are issues that come up for that. For instance, the philosophical problem of evil is one that kind of gets in the way. And if God says he's going to solve it for one person, why isn't he solving it for the other? And and so I think deists are essentially solving the issue by saying like, look, there's a good God, but he just stays hands off. He's way out there. He he doesn't have a set of rules or laws that we need to follow. He's he's created the universe. He, um, you know, here we are on this planet um, and we're to go about being good, but there isn't a set of rules that's been laid out in writing, handed down generation to generation. And so it 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 makes God less obligated to be involved and to cause um, to cause some sort of solution to good and good and evil. And, and I, hence, and hence I think people who are bothered by a certain set of problems, maybe find some relief this way. Yeah, I think so. So like in common language, someone might say, you know, I don't believe in a, in a Santa Claus in the sky kind of God, but I believe that there's something out there or that there may be a, something that started this. That would be more of a deism thing to say. But this still needs him to be, this still needs God to be co a conscious being of some sort, correct? Uh, not necessarily. So like when people talk about Spinoza's God or like the God of nature, or some people even will talk about Einstein's God. So Einstein's God, both atheists and theists tried to claim Einstein, but he really wasn't either. When he looked out in the universe and saw that this mathematical formula match something happening in reality light years away there was something like really holy and sacred about that 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 einstein called god that the math here worked out there 
um, it, or just being so overwhelmed with creation, thinking that it couldn't just be random because it's so ordered or it's so beautiful or it's so complex. So I don't think it has to necessarily be, um, I don't know. It's such a good question. Because if not, I mean, I could it, could so it be room. math? Like, could it, could it just be math for some people? Like math is a kind of God. Do you know what I yeah. mean? And, and I would even posit the, the idea that, you know, it, God has always been whittled down. If you get everybody to sort of agree, they go, look, God is omniscient, uh, omnipresent. Um, what's the third one? Uh, Omnip omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. So all yeah. powerful, all knowing, and all present, all right? Present. Mm -hmm. And if we go back again, I think I've said this on the podcast before, but if you go back 13 point something billion years ago and whatever spark there was that uh, created the, the Big Bang and everything we, if we believe science, we believe everything came out from that. And once you recognize whatever that creative energy that started then and what that creative energy has transformed into, which is everything, then you realize that everything that's known is known by that creative energy because we are the universe expressing ourselves as humans for a little while. We are stardust. So it is it, everything that's known, every single thing known in this universe is known by that creative energy because we are it. Um, it is all present because it's everywhere because it's all things. And it's all powerful because everything that's been done was done by it. And so if we don't need it to be a conscious being, then I can actually very much sit in the space of like the creative energy of 13.7 years ago is what, when people say God, that's the interpretation I put on it. And I can live with it because it does fill all three requirements of who God is. Yeah. That's some next level stuff. I didn't go there. That was some next level stuff. That was super interesting. Yeah. And so deism has a lot of flexibility where um, you can end up in that space and, and really bring a lot of science into that space, but still just have a lot of awe of the universe, right? Yeah, the, um, the only place I would stop before you continue is that yeah. my God would then, it would, it would, my, I would require my God to not be a conscious being. It's not any kind of intentional thing. It just is. Yeah. Uh -huh. I am that I am. Yes, you're 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 becoming a mystic over there. That's some that's some mystic language. That's how the mystics speak. Is they'll take those religious words, omnipresent, omnipotent, yeah. and they'll weave it into something much more mysterious, right? That's what mystics do. That was very cool. All right. Love it. Uh, so the next one, just atheism, and this one is really short because people try to pack a lot into atheism, but there's really not much there. So atheism is not a belief structure. All atheism says is that I'm familiar with the arguments of theism and I'm not convinced. That's it. Not I know there's not a God or Sam Harris is my savior or whatever. Like there's nothing more there except I'm familiar with the arguments of theism and it it's not for me or it hasn't convinced me. There's n absolutely nothing more you can say about atheism except that technically. Now you can get into like, what did atheism look like in the 1800s and what does new atheism look like now? And then there's now, now there's talks about, so if you really want to get technical, so if someone talks about new atheism, they're talking about angry Christopher Hitchens, God is God ruins everything, atheism. And if someone is talking about new, new atheism, it's the kind of atheism that that 
misses some of the awe and transcendence that was lost when you threw out all of spirituality. So new, new atheism actually kind of has like a melancholy to it. Like, a, oh, I think we've lost some things. Um, so you can talk about all of those things, but atheism as an ism is just, I'm not convinced of theism. That's it. Yeah. And I don't have a lot to say there. I don't find the argument for a conscious being as spelled out in any sacred text as rational. There's too many flaws with the argument. Uh, there's too many flaws with how that word came to us. There's too many flaws with the how the rules work and when they don't and when they do that yeah. I am I am forced into a corner to say I simply see no evidence and any argument in favor of a God seems really weak to me that I have to be an atheist by yeah. definition. Do you think that um, this has got to be true on some level, but I, I feel like if we were living, if we were having this conversation a couple hundred years ago, let's say we were just run of the mill Christians 500 years ago, a thousand years ago. Um, and your whole tribe is like a hundred people that live in, in a certain town and everybody's talking about miracles or what the preacher said or what the Bible says or whatever. It'd be really hard to get out of the pattern because the pattern is in everything, in every way of life. But for you and me, you and I have listened to thousands of people talk about what they think God is. And so we notice like, oh, like everybody's a little bit different and these things change. And, you know, maybe this is, you know, seems to be a lot of human humans doing humans are really getting involved with this. Right. You, you of everyone like have looked at, you know, how scripture came to be and Mormonism and all that. So maybe it's easier now. What do you think? Um, the scriptures say that God made man in his image, but I actually think it's man made God in his image, right? That we human beings have tried to explain why the outer world and inner world are the way they are. And in order to explain that and to get a tribe of people to collaborate and work together and to survive, We've had to posit that there's an outside authority who's in charge of punishments, who's in charge of what is good. And because you have to make the conversation um, not us. Like it's not us that are making the rules. Right. Because then the rules, then the rules don't stay consistent, right? But if you right. go like, oh, like he made the rules, right? He's in charge of good and evil. And if we don't follow those, then here's the punishment, then you get to put off your morality onto something else. And that morality can now last generation after generation. But if you, if you're like, Hey, like let's also get together and make some good rules. And those rules are just yeah. subjective. I think it's hard. I think it's amazing that, you know, our founding fathers were um, deists and we're just starting to, you know, make experiments on this or whatever, because if I think of, you know, you've got this nice library behind you, you've talked to all different people around the world. If we didn't have that education, it'd be really hard to get out of the pattern that was given to you. You know what I mean? I'd still believe you'd still I think, believe. I think so too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't think there's any way not to. So the and people who the didn't one... were like super ultra rational people. Yeah. And, and if you were the one person in the tribe who's like, guys, I'm just not going to buy into this bullshit, then they would just, <laughs> yeah, you're either, you're either cast out or yeah. you're killed. 
Yeah. Period. Your, your genes are not getting very far in that tribe. You you're get not, thrown into the volcano because you're not going anywhere, especially no. if you're a woman. If you're a woman, that's it for you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Next one. Next ism is agnosticism. And this one we can, there's a couple, there's some complexity in this one that we can talk about. So agnosticism in our culture, the culture just kind of means, I don't know, but the philosophical definition is you can't know. We can't know any of this. So I'm not getting involved in any of these teams because we can't know. So some people uh, like um, Richard Dawkins would say this. Richard Dawkins says that agnostics are then by definition atheists because they're not convinced by theism. Um, but I don't think agnostics even want to get involved with that. They just want to say they want to be can't. Switzerland. Yeah, I'm, I'm Switzerland. We can't know. You know, you guys are arguing what God says and God thinks. We can't know any such thing. I'm staying out of this is, is kind of the stance. But there's a couple of like nuances within that stance. So if you want to bring up the picture, number one, yeah, for those uh... people who are watching um, on our YouTube channel here. So there's a scale of agnosticism. So you can be an agnostic atheist, which doesn't believe in God, but also doesn't claim to know that there's not a God. So it's like, you know, I'm agnostic. I don't want to get involved, but I'm an agnostic atheist, meaning I don't believe in any gods, but I'm not going to be a missionary for it. I'm not going to tell people that I'm, I for sure know that there's no God, right? Um, there's agnostic theist, which believes a God exists, but doesn't claim to know. Again, not going to be a missionary for it. I think there's a God, but I can't know for sure. I can't know anything about this. There's a Gnostic atheist, which does not believe any God exists and feels like they know that and will tell you about that, you know, that there is no God and this is how I know why. And then there's agnostic agnostic theist, which believes that God exists and claims, or sorry, Gnostic theist, which believes that a God exists and claims to know that a God exists. And so you can kind of be, so there's like an X, Y axis. So there's, you can be more atheist or theist, and then you can be more agnostic or Gnostic, which means how sure are you that you can even know the answer to this question at all? So where do you see yourself on this scale? Hmm. Let me sit with this for just a second. So. Because you lean pretty atheist. I do. So um, you're going to be up there, the atheist. Do you feel like we can know? Or do you feel like we? I don't claim to know that God doesn't exist? Like, where are you on that spectrum? The agnostic, gnostic. I think there is zero. I, I don't know, because I, I wouldn't frame it this way. I, yeah. I think there is zero <laughs> rational argument for a God. Now, there could be something out there, but there's zero evidence of it. And everything, all the rational evidence of this world, all the science, all the critical thinking skills tell me that if he's out there, if she's out there, they have zero interaction and I don't have any way to note that. So I'm not, it's not Gnostic, it's Gnostic in the sense of being like mysterious. Um, Gnostic in the sense is like, how much do you think you can know it? Yeah, I don't think you can know, but it's not in the same way that the Christian believer would go like, see, he doesn't know. Like, yeah. it's not that. It's something yeah. different than that. Because, yeah. <laughs> because that argument implies like he doesn't know one way or the other. 
No, it's that all the evidence says there isn't, and no God as defined by the billion religions that have come into my awareness up to this moment have posited a theory that works in the least degree. Yeah. So I, I think I think we'd be in a similar spot. So I think you and I both are going to be pretty high on the atheist. Okay. But maybe not as far on the Gnostic, but still leaning that way. Like just in the we edge. Know, we know enough about human psychology that we can say as much as we can know anything, I think we can know that this particular God, this isn't it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. No so, one, no one has framed a supreme being that makes sense, and no evidence of any existing supreme being works out. Like it doesn't hold up to rational thinking. Yeah, and then the ones who like know for sure, though, that's when you're like an atheist missionary. Like I know for sure, um, which gets a little tricky because then it becomes like a religion unto itself. Because it's very easy to say, like, oh, I know that this God, you know, I know enough about Scientology to know that this can't be reality. But then what do you know then? You know, like, and that's where it gets tricky, you know. I'm atheist. This is the easier way to say it. It would be like unicorns. I've never yeah. seen a unicorn. There's zero evidence of unicorns. If somebody wants to make the argument that unicorns exist, I can't prove they're wrong. But my brain tells me there's just zero chance that there's a unicorn. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. All right. So there's another picture. I think you might like this one more. And this is from The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. And this is the scale that people talk about when they talk about the scale of atheism. And so Let this next picture, yeah, you're okay. I'll just talk about it while you're going. The, the next picture, oh, there it is is the scale of theistic probability. And you can, people will actually, this is, come into the modern conversation. So if you say I'm an atheist, sometimes people will ask like, well, like what number, like how strong? So number one is a strong theist, a hundred percent probability of God. I, I do not just believe I know you and I know people who are in this place. Um, number two, de facto theist. So high probability, but short of a hundred percent. I don't know for certain, but I strongly believe in God and I live my life on the assumption that he is there. Um, which sounds like something Jordan Peterson says that I'm not for sure. I don't know if there's a God for sure, but I'm going to act and live my life on the assumption that he's there. Number three is leaning towards theism. So a little bit higher than 50%. I'm I'm um, I'm very uncertain, but I'm inclined to kind of believe in God. Four is uh, impartial; just uh, they're both equally as probable. I I don't want to get <laughs> I don't want to get involved in this conversation. I'm Switzerland that space. Um, five lean towards atheism. I don't know whether God exists, but I'm inclined to be skeptical. So these are people that often are even can exist within religion. Like I'm skeptical, but you know. Um, there's still things that I'm considering, you know, I'm, I'm close to that fence. I'm just leaning towards skepticism. And then number six is de facto atheist, very probably, very low probability of God, but short of zero. I don't know for certain, but I think God is very improbable. And I live my life on the assumption that he is not there. And then number seven is I know there is no God. So Dawkins argues that while there appears to be plenty of individuals that would place themselves 
as one due to the strictness of religious doctrine against doubt. Most atheists do not consider themselves a seven because atheism arises like you're talking about, Bill, a lack of evidence and evidence can change a thinking person's mind. So even Dawkins um, self-identifies as a six, even though he's, you know, as strong as an atheist as you can be, right? Anyway, thoughts on this scale? Uh, yeah, this will be much easier for me. This, I would put myself, somebody else here, Heather says she's a 6.5. I'd probably put myself as like a 6.75, 6.85, somewhere in there. Mm. Yeah. And then, so Bill Maher talked to Dawkins again, because there was a lot of people that like, oh, said, oh, Richard Dawkins, he's only a six. So there's, there's still hope that there could be a God. And then when he was on the Bill Maher show, he said, well, actually I'm a 6.9 to be accurate. <laughs> so, so Dawkins kind of like revised his statement that he's a 6.9. But yeah. he's not a seven. He doesn't, he can't say that he knows in the same way that religious people that you and I hung out with all the time yeah. would put themselves as one. Yeah. You know, the backyard professor says one cannot know there is no God. That's idiotic. But I would say a mm -hmm. 6.9 is essentially saying I'm, I'm 99.9% sure. Yeah. I'm as sure as I can know of anything, Right. but I could still be convinced. I also can't be a hundred percent sure there's no unicorns, but I'm not going to walk around and put myself as a five on the unicorn scale. The only person I would say I really think is a seven and he may argue with this. He's argumentative by nature anyway, but he's passed on. He's no longer living. So I can't ask him, but Christopher Hitchens, when he's talking about atheism, they'll ask him, Sometimes, you know, what evidence could you get to change your mind or what could you get you on board with this? And he says, you know what? I know atheists who say that, um, you know, I don't believe in God, but I wish there was a God. But he says, Christopher Hitchens says, if if there were true, I would kick and fight against it to the very end. Because and this is a quote from him. It says, uh, once you assume a creator in a plan, it makes us objects in a cruel experiment whereby we are created sick and commanded to be well. And over us to supervise this is installed a celestial dictatorship, a kind of divine North Korea. So that's as seven as you can get that, like, even if this is true, I'm not playing in this North Korea theistic God game. Yeah. I'm not playing even if it is. And that, that's his, I mean, that's why he's one of the four horsemen of the, you know, atheist apocalypse. He's as strong as I've ever heard. Yeah, I, I can appreciate that. Again, I, I these scales get tough because th this idea of the absence of evidence, it's hard to tell your brain to have any degree of belief in something for which there is in your own mind, zero evidence for. Mm -hmm. And I go back again, I've, I understand that there's the argument that something had to create the big bang or whatever that was that happened. And I understand that argument and I, I, it wasn't there and I can't figure that out, but everything from that moment forward, my rational mind can understand how planets formed, how stars are created, what happens when stars die, how precious metals come from those interactions with the stars, those, those processes, how, how planets got formed, how, uh, life started, how life uh, evolved, how evolution worked, how things became sentient. Um, that process, I can wrap my head around. 
And so there's really not anything that I can go like, oh yeah, like here's a spot where God makes sense. Like there's no spot in my rational mind where God makes sense for the last 13.7 billion years. Yeah. It's kind of like in our justice system, like they're innocent until proven guilty. It's like, it's, it's a no, unless, unless I get information that makes it a yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. All right. So our next kind of group of isms is what kind of God? Now we're going to get a little bit more complex. So we're going to do monotheism, polytheism, henotheism, pantheism, panentheism, and animism. Um, and this, I think, is going to, I think there's going to be at least a couple of these isms that are really going to resonate with both us and our viewers. So the first one, monotheism, belief in one God. So let me, let me ask you this. This is a little bit putting on you on the spot. So I might answer this first to give you time to think about it. But now that we have like a more bird's eye view of Mormonism and Christianity, would you say that Mormonism is monotheistic? Is it a belief in one God? You know so what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So I'm happy to answer that. It, it, there, it's um, The waters are muddy. It's both. It's it's either or and it's all of those because Mormonism wants to say, no, like there's Heavenly Father and he's the supreme being. But then underneath him is Jesus who only does what God tells him to do. And then there's the Holy Ghost. who went, and, then, and then there are other prophets who stand at the head of dispensations and they have more power and authority. So it is definitely by letter of the law, not monotheistic. But it would want to make the argument because it wants to stay in line with the one true God idea yeah. throughout the New Testament and Old Testament. It would want to follow that up. It's super interesting because I feel like Christianity, so they have, oh, it's it's three pieces of a pie, but it's one pie, right? It's one in three forms. And so I think because they made the, you know, Judaism had some polytheism and it made the move towards monotheism. But then, you know, you have these three parts of God, you have the Trinity. And so essentially we all, they all just kind of said it's three, but it's one. And so we went, okay, I guess, like if you say so. And so they kind of like slid into monotheism. And then like Mormonism was like on the coat, you know, on the coattails trying to slide in too. And it's like, wait, 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 that one's even harder though. So yeah. It, it, that one is hard because Christianity will make that monotheism really messy because they'll say, well, it's one and three and it's three different forms, but it's one, one thing. And so Trinity stuff makes the monotheism space really tricky, but technically this would just be belief in one God. Um, polytheism, belief in many gods, um, Today, you see this mostly in tribal religions in Africa, some folk religions in um, China. And the thing that I love about polytheism, this is what I love about Greek gods, is that instead of having, you know, we have like one God and they take all the good characteristics and then you have a Satan and they take all the bad characteristics. With polytheism, you get like anger and love and hate and jealousy. And you, you kind of get the full spectrum of the human psyche because they split it up into all these different gods. So that part of it is really interesting to me. That's why I think you can learn a lot by studying Greek myths because it's like, it's like the human psyche all split up for you to study. Um, but not as popular not as popular today as it was, say, 5,000 years ago 
when it was much more popular than to be polytheist. Can I just put something up on the screen really quick yeah. here? And actually, I can, I can probably pull that other thing down here in a moment. Um, let me put it over here. And this, I would, by the way, just a great video. I, I'm not going to play it or not. I don't want to run into any kind of copyright issue here. But yeah, um, this is a two-hour video that explains the entire history of the universe. And they do it really well. They talk about what processes, like from the Big Bang, processes that would form planets, they come in and talk about like different life and how cells started and they walk you through. I mean, little by little, it walks you through little microorganisms. Next thing you know, water levels, how the planet changed. I would love if folks, if you're like, no, I can't understand how in 13.7 billion years, all this stuff happened. There has to be a God. I would simply suggest look up the YouTube video, the whole history of the earth and life. And, and then come back and at least we can have a conversation where we both are, are understanding this, at least the information that's, that's yeah. in this, even mm -hmm. if you don't believe it, at least then we can have a, an intellectual conversation about it. Yeah. That's where we're stuck, especially in the United States, because this is supposed to be science class. But of course, in many States, um, you're going to get some of this and then you'll also get Adam and Eve in your science textbook, you know, because right. you want, because they'll argue uh, like fair representation. Right. right. Um, and so it's hard because you want to make science class about science and maybe leave theology for other places. And so not everybody is even getting that message. Right. Because, you know, the books will have Adam and Eve right there in the middle of the, in the science book. So it's tricky. It's very tricky. Um, I just a what little tangent. What do you say to this? Yeah, what do you say ahead. to that comment? Now science is your only true religion. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, science can become a religion. It can even become a cult, right? That if I can't put it in a beaker, then it doesn't exist. And it can, and I only listen to these kinds of scientists and, and whatnot. Um, that can happen. What, what I would say is that science though, is a, is a way of knowing it, it's a way of, um, it's a way of learning. It's a way of differentiating. So it's it's not a religion in the sense that there's a dogma. It's it's a way of trying to perceive the truth. And now the cool thing about science is that you can take things like spiritual experiences, which Bill and I do on the podcast all the time. What is the science on how people experience awe? Let's talk about it. You know, um, so science is getting much bigger. It can become a religion when people can make a cult out of anything. But at its core, it's really a way of knowing, and it should be taught in science class. The scientific method should be taught in science class. Yeah, and, and I would add to that that I've always been one who tries to practice rational thinking. Obviously, I've got my flaws like everyone, but I'm always trying to figure out what conclusion requires the least amount of allowances and conjecture. And then whatever conclusion requires the least amount of allowances and conjecture, that's the rational conclusion that I want to go with. And I think science is doing the same thing. It is saying, look, this is the best conclusion. This is the best way we understand this process. And until new information comes along that discredits this. Now, again, we're talking about good science. There's obviously people out there who posit scientific theories that are weak and they hold on to them and, and they don't really want other theories that are better to come into their way. But science generally is trying to figure out the best way to understand things. And, and good science will always make room for new information to come into the picture yeah. and then to change the science. And so science for me 
works along the exact same lines as rational thinking does, how logic works. And hence, no, science isn't my religion, but science is the best way to organize and understand the world rather than myth stories that have been proposed and lasted through thousands of years. Yeah, so that same listener, and th these are great comments, by the way. We're not jumping on you, listener. These are great comments. Um, and I hear, you know, Neil Tyson deGrasse answer these same, he's answered this question multiple times, I've heard him. They'll say, well, you're just having faith in the scientists that tell you this is what's going on. And so it's the same as me having faith in, you know, whatever else. And so, you know, what I say to that is that if all of the religious books were to disappear from memory, they wouldn't come back the same way. But if all the science books and all the science textbooks now were to be burned and removed from memory, thousand years later, they'd all be back is because, and, and the reason for that is that you don't have to take anything on faith. You don't have to take anything on bad evidence. If you're a scientist and you do a study and you say, I think it's this, you can come out 10 years later and say it's wrong. And you actually get credibility for doing so. You are more credible by disproving your own theory than if you were just to keep trying to prove it in the face of worse evidence. And so science have, has that self-corrective tool that religion just doesn't have, um, where you can update and you can disprove it and you can um, change it and you can change the conversation. Religion takes longer to have those conversations and make those changes. And when it does change, it's because science and secularism is pushing it from the outside and then it'll make changes, but it's much more slow and much more bloody and much more painful than being able to just say, you know what, we were wrong about that. And I think it's this now. Okay. That's the prevailing theory. That's great. Um, so yeah. it has that self-correcting piece that just religion doesn't. Yeah. It all can right. correct itself yeah. on a dime yeah. and religion has to take all of this, like, Ooh, can we really make this change? And, and it right. can take lots of years and lots of voices and it still doesn't know if it's getting it right. Right. All right. So next one, henotheism. So this may be more technically what other, what, what some of these religions are, like Mormonism. Um, they worship one God, but recognize many gods. So this would, by the way, uh, be Hinduism technically. Sometimes Hinduism is called polytheistic. More technically, it's henotheistic, which is that there are a bunch of gods, but in Hinduism, they're manifestations of the same God. And so they're really only worshiping one God. There's just many different paths. There's many different avatars or forms that you can, as a family, decide to worship, or as a um, city even will choose one to worship. So there are very few Hindu atheists. And I think that there's just because there's really a high level of choice. You worship the God that you choose. You kind of find the path to God that works best for you. There's not a lot of rules in that regard. So in, you know, the Upanishads, all gods yield the desired fruit if properly worshipped. There are some guidelines in the form of like class or sex, or if you're a leader or a king, as far as what, what God or avatar, you know, you should be worshipping. But for the most part, um, they come to the same God through different names. So there's just a lot of flexibility. So Eugene England, who's one of, for our Mormon listeners, he's a... a Mormon intellectual thought and wrote publicly that Mormonism was henotheistic, which is we recognize many gods, um, but we only worship one, which maybe it's more technical, you know, 
framework. I've never heard that in any kind of Mormon discussion ever. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea of lots of gods, I was the only note I made here is I think it allows some individuality, right? Like you get to look out across the scope of all of these beings that you choose to have some sort of belief in and this God's over there and that he takes care of this and she's over there. She's a God that takes care of that. And you get to sort of mix and match it with your own flavor of your own personality. And you see that in some of these religions, Um, even in, even in Christianity, often in these old Testament stories is this idea that there are other religions around and they have lots of gods. And, and so giving people the ability to pick kind of their favorite God and have that be their totem above their, their fireplace or whatever it gives a little more freedom of uniqueness and yeah. your own kind of your own flavor about yourself. And I think it's interesting that because you have so many more choices and like you say, so many more paths, you're much less likely to just say, Oh, I'm an atheist. Right. Because that's much more common in America when it's like, we are a Christian nation and this is the God and you have to worship this or you're going to burn in hell. And so it's like, okay, I'm atheist, you know, but if it's not like that, then you don't have as high of a rejection, which is interesting. Yeah, totally. All right, pantheism. I see you in a lot of this, Bill. But pantheism, I really think, is on the rise for multiple reasons. But it's this idea that everything shares the same spiritual essence. So it would be that you don't really have distinct spirits or souls but that God is kind of the collective consciousness of all living creatures, right? So Richard Dawkins says that pantheism is just sexed up atheism. Anyway, I just thought it was a funny phrase. So there is a rejection of, you know, capital G Santa Claus God, but there's still some romanticism around, you know, the universe or life or what you were talking about, which is, you know, we have a history of consciousness and it's it's the universe expressing itself and it continues to recycle itself into new life. Um, and that it's so overwhelming and creates so much awe to think about that you can still call that God in some way. And so pantheism, it's, it's not going to be animism, which is like this tree has a soul specific, like its own soul that's unique to them. It's more just like we are all part of the same thing. And that thing, we can call that God because it's so incredible to think about. Um, I don't have the soundbite handy, but there's a soundbite from Jordan Peterson where he tries to describe a little bit of kind of the God he believes in. And you can just feel him tiptoeing around the edges of it. He doesn't really want to be, be direct. And, there's a certain amount of awe I feel, which I call spirituality, when I hear the the wisdom folks, Alan Watts, Ram Dass, um, or, uh, Terrence McKenna, when I hear these guys kind of approach what that mystery in the universe is, and I, I get really excited to hear people kind of do that. And unfortunately, we live in a world where everyone wants to kind of pinpoint it and name it. And, and for me, this idea of pantheism it really allows you to kind of see it more as mysterious and not really need to name it. And I, I think there's a lot of value because I think everyone who gets specific and names it isn't even close to it. And the folks who are closest to it are the ones who describe it in, in ambiguous ways. 
You're, you're muted. And there's a lot of directions that this one can go. So some people talk about earth as if it's like a, a goddess, right? A goddess of life, right? That that's one and it's all connected. So there's that kind of pantheism, really earthy. There's also kind of more of a scientific one, a little bit more Sam Harris, where it's just collective consciousness and you can call collective consciousness one thing because it's so interconnected in the way that I'm one Brittany, but I'm also like a billion little things that make up my one Brittany, right? So yeah, there's a lot of different ways that you can go with it. You can go the really nature, Spinoza's God, um, laying on the grass and we're all one kind of place. And you can also really dig into consciousness here as um, as something collective that we're experiencing and sharing and that the essence of Brittany, whatever it was, will be forgotten and and recycled. But I was a part of something bigger than myself. Anyway. Yeah. yeah and my other thought, I mean, if we look at the human body, let's just pretend the human body is the universe. And there's a blood cell running around in there. And that blood cell is separate from everything else, just like we think we're separate from everything else. And if that blood cell had consciousness, it would tell itself it's its own individual, right? But it isn't. It's part of the human body. And if we sit back and just recognize, again, we humans have consciousness, so we get to tell ourselves a narrative about how we're different than the animals, and we're different than the rocks, and we're different than the planet, and we're different than the trees but we're not. We're the same material. And if we go back far enough, it, it goes back to a point where it started with something really that took up much less space that was much simpler and has slowly evolved into lots of things that are very complex. But just like the cells running through your body, it you could easily see yourself as bar, part of a bigger process rather than just being determined to say, nope, I'm this red blood cell and I'm on my own here. You're not, yeah. you're, you're part of something bigger than you and you don't even get it because your consciousness gets in the way. Yeah. I really love that analogy. I can go, yeah, I can go fully in with like, if that's God to you, that you're a part of a body and you're a blood cell, like I I'll go with there any day of the week that that makes sense to me. I don't have any problems with that. Another one um, that is similar to pantheism that is really interesting to study. I think it's also on the rise. All of these kind of maybe more earthy um, forms of spirituality are on the rise in general. This is this is a time when Christianity is falling and paganism is, and the occult are having kind of their day for a little bit. They always go back and forth. But um, panentheism is this idea that God is the universe. Okay, so pantheism is that God is the universe. They're, they're identical, right? Collective consciousness, whatever it is. Theism is God created the universe. Panentheism is that there is a God, but God is a part of the universe. And you can show that, that next picture, picture number three. But so you can still get everything as divine or spirit, but there's also a God. And God is kind of a co-creator or a part of the universe, but not the creator of the universe. And for those who were ever got into like really deep Mormon history for our Mormon viewers, we don't do this very often, but um, I will when it's nerding out about some of some of this ism stuff. 
the shocking thing is that, you know, Mormonism now is God to prophet, be obedient, right? But early Mormonism from the Pratt and Joseph Smith, King Follett discourse was that God was a co-creator. God didn't create the universe from nothing. He awoke and Jesus awoke and they made plans to help others awake. And God can't make all the rules because God didn't create the universe out of nothing. So one way that Mormonism is interesting is at the time when everyone else was in this second great awakening in America, they're fighting about the extent of God's power. Joseph has this really unique answer. He doesn't believe in the fall. He doesn't believe that God is just distant. Um, he puts everything on the path of eternal progression. If you read early Mormonism, it'll talk about the eternal progression of an apple tree. I mean, everything. And everything can progress and is part of the universe, including God. So one of the most interesting things about Mormonism, it's been entirely lost in the bureaucracy. If you want to learn more about that transition, see all of Bill's other podcasts. But, it, but there was this strand for a while that that Mormonism was panentheism, which there is a God, but God is a part of the universe and not the creator of the universe. Thoughts there? Yeah, so I was just looking up. It was going to take me a second because it made me think of there's science out there just in the last few years that our organs have their own consciousness. Hmm. And uh, let me just find one of these really quick. Um Energy life sciences. I want to make sure I get something reputable because I've read this in several places. Um, let's see here. So while you're looking for the people who are just listening to this in podcast form, I have a slide up and it says it has God and then an arrow to universe. And that's theism. And then you have penentheism, which is God. And it has a big circle. And then the universe, um, is inside of that. And so God is a part of the universe and not a creator of the universe. And everything else can have separate souls, but also is still part of the universe. So panentheism is really interesting. They're trying to keep God, but it's not a God that created everything. It's not, it's not the out of nothing creator God of the, of the Bible. It's, it's a different kind of God. It's a God that that is also subject to the laws of the universe, which is really interesting. So I'm not finding the article, but there's several things like science in the last, say, five years, there's just been progress made. And I remember reading in multiple places. And again, I, I'll try to find something by the end of the show and put it up in the, the sort resource notes for the episode. But the idea that our organs have their own consciousness, they are communicating with other organs in the body, and that it isn't consciousness like we think of ours. But it certainly is, as you would define consciousness at the very basis level, there is communication going on and there is some sort of awareness and those organs respond when certain things happen. Another thing that came out in the last five years is that our DNA, for instance, stores memory. Um, so we pass memory along in our DNA so that when you have children, children that are born before and children that are born after a traumatic event handle those traumatic events differently. And, and you can certainly see how that would be valuable from an evolutionary perspective. And it's not that your children have a memory in their DNA of going like, oh yeah, mom was at the circus. No, but it's it's on some level, this baseline of- It'll switch genes off and on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh -huh. and, and, and so there's lots of stuff going on that certainly points to um, 
the universe being much more complex at a micro level than we understand, and also much more complex at a macro level than we understand. And when I sit here and think about pantheism, that God is the universe, and you start thinking about all the tiers, like again, it's only in the last few hundred years that we started having medical people wash their hands so that people wouldn't die from germs. When you get down to that small of a level, there is some sort of life that is unseeable that in its realm, it appears as if it's in its own universe at a level that we can't even visualize. Mm -hmm. We can't mm -hmm. even see it. And so you just have to start to sit with how big you are in comparison to this you know, in you, this universe inside your gut, for instance, mm -hmm. and how small you are to this universe that's out there in the stars. And you can't fathom either one, either one of them. They are just absolutely, mm -hmm. you can't, you can't even come to grips with e the size or scope of either one of those worlds. Last night, this is a little bit of a tangent, but last night I was reading, I was up because I'm trying to get off the pain meds, obviously. And so I was up because my knee was hurting. And I was reading this article, it was like 3am, but it was this bee colony. And because the bees were dying, they were starting to do more inbreeding. And so you're starting to get more um, genetic issues with that. And so the queen bee, they found this queen bee that was cloning herself. And they stopped essentially um, mating with the male drone bees and she had switched something evolution did something right th that I don't fully understand and because there was this problem with there was just too much um, inbreeding and so she was cloning herself and so she had lasted for years and years and years and years as a clone of herself and it was like again like I'm just in my bed just like completely dumbfounded in awe of like what is happening that somehow this bee colony was able to figure out how to stay alive when inbreeding was a problem because the, the thing was shrinking and the genes figured out how to clone itself and they didn't need male bees anymore. They were a cloned, they were a female hive of cloned bees of the same bee. It was absolutely fascinating. Yeah. There's, there's certainly tons of stuff out there that is beyond what any of us would even understand how the world works. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so pantheism, you know, we're all kind of one thing. Panentheism, God is a part of the universe, but not the creator. Animism, which you were talking about, which uh, a little bit, which is the, uh, you know, plants have souls and even rocks have souls and, um, kind of that there's a supernatural power that organizes and animates the material universe. You see this a lot more with um, Native American religion, this kind of animism. Everything is an animal. Everything has a soul. Everything's alive. Um, but like you said, there are, things are alive much more than we thought they were. You know, scientifically, things are alive much more than we thought they were. And we're trying to figure that out, which is why we have all these isms, thinking well, they all have a different point of view and an idea. Right. All right. So the next one, if you're ready, is um, four philosophies that um, come about when you are, especially if you are deconstructing from religion. So humanism, nihilism, absurdism, and existentialism. And these are these are fairly popular. These these are good to know, and I know a lot of people in this space. So nihilism, I've talked about a little bit more. I think I've struggled with it more than you have, Bill. 
but you know nihilism at its core is that life is meaningless and pursuing meaning is also pointless and meaningless so you can get there with depression you can get there philosophy with philosophy you can get there um from religious deconstruction you can get there just by thinking about you know in the time span of a million years nothing anyone does matters you can get there when you lose god philosophers call this place the void and i've talked about this on the podcast before because it's something i struggled with and i reached out to my own spiritual directors for help it's this black hole where you can't make any decisions and it can be dangerous to individuals because it is related to suicide um there's a hatred of being and life itself that we find in like if you read the journals of the columbine killers so if you're just like not only is there not a god life is unimpressive everything is meaningless everything is pointless um that's called nihilism and we can talk about the two kinds of nihilism so there's an active nihilism which means that we should kind of blow up the matrix essentially and construct our own narratives and meanings so this would be like nietzsche was a an active nihilist like okay life doesn't have any meaning so you're gonna have to create it and then passive nihilism is is a little bit more a little bit more sad i would say where it's um you kind of stay in the matrix of traditional values. You have severe doubts about those values. And basically all you do is try to reduce suffering as you can. And then you die. Like that's the best that you can do. That would be more passive nihilism. Anyway, thoughts about nihilism. Yeah. Nihilism. So this idea of reducing suffering, nihilism isn't, is in and of itself deciding on some level to think in a way that adds suffering to your life, right? Like to be hopeless isn't enjoyable so if you're yeah. going to try to reduce suffering in the rest of the world you ought to try to figure out you even if you gotta have an illusion you ought to figure yeah. out a way to pretend that it's not a nihilistic view so that That's, you also reduce your own suffering people get stuck there because you've got to find a handhold or else you feel like you're gaslighting yourself and especially people who are coming from religion and just don't want to be brainwashed anymore they are wary of just picking some kind of something to hold on to or an illusion, as you say, they, they have a hard time doing that because of their trauma and their triggers from religion. And so they're stuck. You get stuck there unless you get, yeah. get a handhold somewhere. And, and for me, some of those handholds are, um, Try, uh, again, this is all I, I just went in my head and went like, okay, there's no free will bill. So there's no sense in even making this argument, but I, I want to know how things work. I want to know, I want to know as many things as I can. I want to have as much impact on people as I can. I want to, I want as much as possible, make the world a better place because um, you never know what will be achieved. I agree. Someday humans will either evolve into something else or they won't exist anyway, because we'll be we will have our demise, whether we cause it ourselves or whether we just last so long that the sun burns up or whatever it is, right? So it is hopeless in that someday there isn't human beings and someday there isn't a planet Earth and someday there isn't a Milky Way galaxy and someday there isn't a universe. And all that said, I still think it is fun to try to see how far we can get to see what we can learn on, on an individual scale and on a collective scale. 
Mm-hmm. And so making that a game, for me anyway, allows me to be, and again, I'm a white privileged uh, male, um, and there's tons of other privileges that I'm not naming there. I can't, I'm not saying it's that everyone can get there, but by making it a game, I'm able to much more um, fully enjoy my life and much more easily get up every day feeling good about what's ahead for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's that shift there that you were talking about is the definition, is the place between nihilism and absurdism. And I'm so glad that you said the word fun because the shift, nihilism can be a hard place to stay just because it's so paralyzing. Um, But if you can shift it into absurdism, you have a lot more fun there. And And I'm glad that you said that word. So absurdism, like nihilism, believes that it may be the case that the universe is absurd and the sun blows up and the earth dies and the universe doesn't care, right? That may be reality. But when you embrace the absurdity of it and realize you have the opportunity to experience and explore and make this a fun game, um, then you kind of turn into a sunny nihilist, which is what absurdism is. You open the door to creating to creating meaning and enjoyment. So if you want to spend your life surfing, cause that you just get into a flow state and you love it. Great. Life is absurd. You might as well have fun. It's going to be great. Do you love cat posters? Cool. Why not? Like, and so for me and you, the game that we're playing right now is not because either of us believe that we're going to solve the world's problems or this is going to matter 500 years from now or even 100 years from now. It's because this is our favorite game. We're playing, right? And that was such a big shift for me to go from I'm seeking the truth because that's my meaning in life to, and then when I realized that I was never going to find the truth, I slid into nihilism. But then when I realized, no, this is my favorite game, now I can still play my favorite game even though the universe may still be absurd. Yeah. Um, once you sit with, cause this is part of the nihilistic view. It's all myth. It's all made up. And, and the easiest example for me is money. We, we chose some elements in the ground. We chose some shiny metals and we, and specific ones. And we said, these metals will be worth more than others. It was just a collective agreement that gold's going to be worth this and silver is going to be worth that. And then we created paper money and we said it's based on those metals, which is already a myth on its own, right? And now you got paper money with print on it. And we've agreed like now this is worth a certain amount of that sitting yeah. there. And, and now there's a picture have... of George Washington and he's mm-hmm. a myth. And there's a, a number piece of on tree, it. And... A piece of yeah. tree with print with ink on it. And we say yeah. this is what it's worth. Now we get rid of the paper money. And now we got a plastic card. And we say, oh, the paper money will sit there. But the plastic card will represent the paper money, which represents the gold mm-hmm. and silver. Mm-hmm. And, and now we're to the point where we're going to get rid of all of that stuff. And we're just going to go, yeah, you're going to have just a chip in your hand. It's your bank account. And you don't realize like it's all made up. Mm-hmm. Everything is myth. Your friendships are myth. Nobody wants to hear this, but it, they are. The moment you, the, the two parties decide to collectively agree differently, it's not a friendship anymore. Um, your relationship with your spouse, your relationship to your kids, your love for your kids. It's all, it's all BS. It's mm-hmm. not real. It's all in your head, but it's not real. Yeah. And it's a good game. It's a, it's and the, it's a it's beautiful the, game. And it's the best game in town. It's right? the, it is. Ha- happiness. This conversation, which for us is our favorite game. 
it's the best game in town. You might as well play while you have the opportunity to play. It, so this that's, is a play and you're yeah. an actor. You're an actor in a play and everybody's the star of their own play. And, mm -hmm. and there are only so many present moments and none of us know how many present moments we'll get. So I want this present moment to be great. Mm -hmm. And sitting here and talking to Britt Hartley, having just a fun conversation, playing with ideas is the funnest way to spend this present moment. Mm -hmm. And I have figured out, I figured out how can I make it so that my life gives me the chance to help people enjoy and myself enjoy as many present moments as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's absurdism. Life is absurd and it's a game and all those things are still true. All those, you know, somewhat depressing things. You don't have free will. All those things can still be true. And like, Hey, let's play. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a sunny nihilism. It's lovely. It's absolutely lovely to, um, to have made the move from nihilism to absurdism. Yeah. One last thing is um, I just really love the philosopher Albert Camus. And he says that you have three choices when you face nihilism. One is suicide. He says the first kind of question of philosophy is, is suicide. And he's being very direct here. Um, and he says the problem with that is that you add more absurdity to life because you become the thing that you hate because your life was a miracle to begin with. So by taking out the miracle, you make life more suffering and more absurd. And so you become the thing that you hate. So don't do that. The second is philosophical suicide. And this is where he says, if you hit nihilism and you take a leap of faith and pretend there's a higher power so that you have meaning in your life, you have committed philosophical suicide. Don't do that. And I know people who have made that jump. I'm in nihilism, so I'm going to choose to believe in whatever so that I don't have to be in this place. I almost wonder if Jordan Peterson, to some extent, has. Made I that think move. so. I yeah. really think so. I like really I don't believe so. in God, but I'm better off if I do, so I will. Yes. Uh huh. And Camus is like, don't do that either. You don't have to do that. So his third option, and he is the king of talking about nihilism and, and absurdism, is to embrace the absurd, realize that you're within this game, you are free. And you're free to pursue anything that you want and try to embrace whatever life has to offer you, whatever this game has to offer you. Um, and that is the best way to face reality, which is absurd. Everything is so absurd, you know, so just embrace it and play the games that are meaningful and, you know, the science of happiness and fun and however you want to spend your life, as long as you're not causing more suffering. Um, embrace the, the absurdity. And to know, I mean, again, we speak from a point of privilege. There are people who can't even ponder this conversation. Mm -hmm. They're in some place in the world where their biggest need is simply to fill their starving belly in this moment. And maybe they don't, and they starve to death today. And uh, we yeah. really are in a privileged place to play this game. Mm -hmm. But but I'm not going to cast my privilege off simply because I have it. Like I'm in a place to enjoy the game. So I'm going to enjoy it. Yeah. And it's, and it's, you can also think about it as a, I, I don't think by embracing the absurdity, I'm betraying my ancestors, the ones that worked really hard and the ones who, I mean, mo most of my line going backwards in history has a lot more suffering in my life than I have. And mm -hmm. so the best thing that I can do is in, enjoy life, you know, as, as much as possible and try to continue that life for my children. Um, 
that's the best that's that's the best i can gift i can give to their memory is that you sacrifice something for me to be alive and i'm not going to waste it i'm not going to let it pass by without noticing that my life is passing by i'm going to be very intentional about what i do with this gift you gave you gave me you know and you started off talking about suicide physical suicide and not to make light of it we're we're talking philosophy in a sense here and and not to diminish like how hard lives are and the real the real need or awareness that your life really probably has less pain to exit now than to stick around i totally get all that but on some level to also wrestle with that you you let go of yourself to relieve your suffering with an awareness that you add to others right like there's other complications from that and so in this idea that suicide but you add more absurdity to life so you become the thing you hate and your life was a miracle to begin with it's just this recognition that and, and, and again, I'm not speaking to anybody in that suicidal ideology. They've got their own problems to worry about. We're talking philosophy here and people that aren't that close to the action. But when you when you exit this life, you make it terribly more difficult on everyone else left behind. So if your goal is really to relieve suffering, it's really your suffering, which is fine. But to recognize you're not relieving suffering generally, it, that's just not the way this works. It, it, it all it is all complicated stuff and lives are hard and difficult and i don't want to i don't want to i want to tread lightly here i guess yeah we always tread lightly because you and i are not trained for suicide prevention no no not at all but and if but there is a philosophical idea that if life is hard and you remove yourself from it that you become the thing that you hated and it's going to cause more suffering in the world. So stick yeah. around and help us make the world better because right. we need you. Right. That's a philosophical idea of we need everyone on this project. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. And then the last one in this group is existentialism, which is a little bit different. So existentialists also believe that um, the universe has no intrinsic meaning. But they but insist that we have free will, we have awareness, and we have personal responsibility to become everything that we can be and create meaning. So it's a little bit less like, hey, if you want to go surfing and it's not hurting anyone, then that's great. Existentialists are much more, okay, the universe isn't going to give you meaning, but you have free will and a ton of personal responsibility to make meaning in the world. And you have to do that, right? So no one is responsible for meaning except us. It is created through our existence and the choices that we make. Kierkegaard was the first existentialist philosopher, and he believed that each individual is tasked with giving meaning to life um, and that it was your responsibility to do so. He was also Christian, so there's room to work within religion here. If you think that the best expression of yourself or the best thing that you can do to make your life responsible and give it meaning is a religious path. Existentialism might be, it's a little bit more of a religious place to hang out because there is a belief in free will and there is a belief in personal responsibility. And it's much more likely to be okay with working within religions because that may be the best place where you can provide meaning in the world is the religion that you're around. Yeah. That your existence on its own is meaningful. And that you like sort of like the absurdism, but just go make your best life. Go, go do again. Don't cause intentional harm. Don't cause unnecessary trauma on the world. 
but go go live your best life and let your let your life be essentially a piece of art like you exist that is in and of itself incredible when you think about again go back 13.7 billion years ago and if one piece of dust was a a, a millimeter in a different spot now fast forward 13.7 billion years and everyone on this planet wouldn't be the person they it'd be somebody else there'd be mm -hmm. a ton of other people walking um you change anything if your mom and dad mm -hmm. made love uh, two minutes earlier mm -hmm. or 30 seconds later, or uh, your, your dad decided again, I don't believe in free will, but if your dad in the, under the illusion of free will chose to eat a different <laughs> box of cereal mm -hmm. a week earlier, it would have impacted every choice going forward. You wouldn't be here. The fact that you're here is not supernatural, but it is miraculous. Yeah. And so and it, you get to play with that. Like yeah. you're, it's miraculous that you're here and it could have been completely something different. That is one of, I think that's one of the reasons why we have so many isms is because to run the experiments that we would need to figure out what's going on here, you would have to step out of the universe and run the experiment and see what happens. And we can't do that. And so, yeah. you know, we're, we're figuring this out as we go. All right. So we're, we're about an hour and 15 minutes in and about halfway. Do you want to plow through or do you want to do a part two? Uh, it's up to you. Oh, I don't know. What do you think? If we do a part two, when can we squeeze it in? Would it be next week? It, it would be in two weeks. Two weeks. That's right. We've got uh, Jana, right? I got I got time. Can, can we push through one more Let's hour? Let's okay. keep going. All right. So we're going to keep going, but I'll, I'll try to go through these faster. So the next, the next one of the philosophical isms is humanism. So I want to tell you, I don't know if you've ever read the Ten Commandments on humanism, but I want to see what you think or if you would add any. So humanism is the re rejection of the divine, rejection of supernatural, prime importance on human affairs. Let's leave God to the side. Let's just focus on human flourishing. That's what humanism is. So the Ten Commandments of humanism. One, promote the greater good. Two, be curious. Three, uh, don't harm your fellow human. If you do, it's a harm to humanity. Don't kill, rape, rob, victimize anyone. Four, treat all humans as equals. Five, use reason as your guide. Science, knowledge, observation, and rational analysis are the best ways to determine any course of action. Six, don't force your beliefs onto others. Seven, govern with reason and not superstition. Religion should have no place in government. Eight, act for the betterment of your fellow humans. Be altruistic in your deeds. Nine, be good to the earth and its bounties, for without it, humankind is lost. Ten, impart your knowledge and wisdom gained in your lifetime to the next generation, so that with each passing century, humanity will grow wise and more humane. So those are the ten commandments. I like of them. I like those. I mean, I mean I the world like would we... be really different if, like, Moses brought those down off the mountain. Yeah, I, you know, I was saying, like, let let rationality be the guide. It says the same thing. Use reason. I, I would want people to have a um, uh, a leaning towards wanting to learn and improve. They got that and be curious, which I think is, it falls into that, not doing harm to other people, promoting greater good. I think they cover, if we could base a society on that, we'd be much further ahead than, than any myth, any society basing their, their moral code and their laws on myth. Yeah, they tried to do some humanist churches and it didn't really for reasons that we've talked about before. Yeah, it doesn't work. It didn't it didn't have enough myth and ritual and art and music and it just it it didn't have enough myth 
to bind the people together, even though these are 10 really good commandments. The only one I would add is like something about meaning or something about you can make your life meaningful, something like that, or, or your responsibility or uh, something about, you know, using, I like the 10 commandments. I would have just added maybe one on, on the meaning of life and, or love or something like that. Mm. And not we definitely just, need a motive. We definitely need motives that push us towards being our best selves. Yeah. Where we so care. two different kinds of humanism that you'll hear of secular humanism, which is re a rejection of all the supernatural. It's the most popular form of humanism. It's very um, critical of the supernatural and religion in any form. And then there's religious humanism. This ism is probably the one that is most interesting to me. Um, it may describe me the best. I'd have to think about it. But it's a religious humanist is an atheist still, you know, rejects the supernatural, but finds value in congregational rights, community activities, self-described human religious humanists differ from secular humanists, mainly in that they regard uh, non-theistic human life as their religion in organizing in more of a religious way. So it's sometimes called non-theistic religion or religion without a God. And there's some, there's some ways that that describes me. I still have rituals. I still have a community, spiritual community. I still have um, really value, you know, art and culture and, and music and things that we get from religion. I'll go visit chapels and still experience awe. So religious humanists, they don't believe in God, but they think that there's still some gems there in religion that are worth holding on to. Doesn't it seem, though, that the only reason one would feel the need to do that is because the tools aren't available in somewhere else? In other words, like, yeah. I'll stay in religion because the rituals, the community, whatever, we've gone over these in multiple episodes. Yeah. Um, the values that religion holds, the binding power it has, the ability to get people to work together, and the ability to pass along ideas and technology generation after generation, when, as you pointed out, People will try out Oasis for a few weeks and then they're like, nope, I'd rather stay home. So yeah. the moment there's a better option that carries all the tools that isn't based on that having to pretend to believe in a myth, it seems like that group would jump off the train and get on the other, get on the part, other transportation. Part of the, part of the issue too is that that's one question. I think another question is how much do we really need here? Because like a thousand years ago, you needed myths and you needed the stained glass windows because nobody could read a book. You didn't have a personal library. You know what I mean? You needed a sermon. That was the only time you were, we have Ted talks, you know? So there's some argument that says for secular humanist types, this is where you get, you know, we've talked about Elaine de Baton who does atheism 2.0. We both really enjoyed that. And, you know, someone like Richard Dawkins, who's more of a secular humanist would say, you don't need, we don't need any of this. We don't need any of this. You have books. You have universities, you have TED Talks, you don't need any of this. We don't need that that same passing down rights rituals thing that we used that we used to to survive because we're we've kind of grown out of it. You can get these tools individually now or in other ways now. Yeah, I don't know how effective that is. I yeah, you're much more prone than me to want to dig into religion and figure out these tools and figure out a way that we pass that technology on. And I, I just, 
I, I'm not there, but I completely get that we better come up with something because I, I'm afraid of where we are in 50 years. Mm. I'm afraid of where my kids are. Like my kids are brilliant. They seem to have like my, my youngest kid, 17 years old. He, he can play multiple instruments. He, he knows information that I certainly didn't at his age. He's just soaking it in, but his ability to function on this social level of society, I'm a little nervous of where he's going to get those skills from. Mm. Yeah. And it may be a personality thing. I'm looking at the comments as you're talking and some people are like, um, I'm with Bill. I, I don't find the need or I don't find, I don't find a lot of this compelling. I don't think that we need as much of this as religious humanists say we do. Um, and there was another comment that said, has, has Brit ever been into Grateful Dead shows where they, the followers did have, you know, rituals and, you know, they would travel and do these rituals when the Grateful Dead were playing. And so, you know, maybe we just do, maybe we're so religious by genetics that we do this, you know, we used to sing in church together. And then when that went away, we go to our favorite band and we all sing together and you do get a little bit, it, you can alter your state of consciousness just singing with a stadium full of people. There's you know, other like, things going on that help you. Alter there's other things too, especially at a Grateful Dead concert. Especially. But, but you know, there there is some ritual to it and there is some, you know, feelings of connectedness that go into it. Yeah. I saw a study that shows that, you know, raves really went up because when, you know, the churches started to get really boring, um, they, rave is where you would go to feel really connected to everything else but you mm. used to get that at church mm. anyway so it, it some of this i think is a difference in personality i think maybe some people need um need more rituals need more of that community need more of that continual uh presence to feel like they're you know more grounded um, and some people don't, you can handle a little bit more chaos in your life than I can generally, just and as I'll a say, personality type. I think. Yeah. And I want to clarify, like when I say hey, I'm not as prone as you to want to hold on to, like, let's have a deep conversation about the value of, of the vehicles within religion that allow us to keep this technology and pass it on. I'm not as prone as you, but in having sat with you for the last year or so having conversations on a regular basis you have absolutely showed me that that's a blind spot of mine that to dis to discard religion so easily without pausing to go like wait a minute what are all these things that it does and how are we going to get those and what does that mean for humanity if we don't figure out how to maintain these these uh processes to pass along certain technology and, and i keep using that word because i think it's exactly what it is mm -hmm. i mean the public school system was created to help our children be able from generation to generation to have the basic level of perpetuating our society, right? Teaching you government, teach you basic math, teach you basic English. It allowed you to communicate, allowed you to write. If we just leave everybody to teach their kids all these things at home and homeschooling is its own conversation, but what you end up with is a lot of inconsistency about what gets passed on. And so there is some value in society as a whole saying, look, we're going to put kids through school, K through 12. We're going to give them these basic skills so that our society, generation after generation, perpetuates certain information, perpetuates certain understanding, certain tools, certain technologies. And 
And so the value in what you've done over the last year and showing me that religion can be complete BS, it can cause so much harm and trauma, it absolutely should be accountable to that. And we ought to, before we throw it away, we ought to see what babies are in that bathwater that, mm-hmm. that would do great harm to our society if we just let it go. Yeah, that school analogy is a really good analogy because, yeah, it's very easy to say, like, here are all the problems with public school. And there are so many problems. Mm-hmm. But if tomorrow all of those public schools went away, I'm not sure what would come out of that mm, would be wouldn't better be good. than what we have. Mm-mm. You know, that would be a risk. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about the risk of, of how we're doing this, but all right. So the last one for this kind of atheist part is the difference between rationalism and empiricism. And I'm really curious to hear what you think about this. So the best example, okay. So rationalism is that knowledge comes from reason and logic and empiricism is that knowledge comes from experiments and experimentation. So here's the best analogy that I've heard on the difference between these two things. So, and this comes from Stephen Fry, who's an atheist, but he's an empiricist. So he says, you know, it would be valuable. He made this up. It would be valuable if the president of the United States once a week walked up to a statue of George Washington and said out loud and and pushed a button and the, the George Washington statue says, what did you do this week for my country? And you'd have to respond to it. Now, logically, George Washington isn't here. It's not his spirit. There's nothing going on. A rationalist would say, George Washington is dead. This is stupid. There's no reason to do this. But an empiricist would say, but there's something valuable in the experience. There's something to be had in this experience that is helpful enough that we should do it anyway. And so Richard Dawkins is a rationalist. Um, Stephen Fry is an empiricist. So he's an atheist. The problem of evil doesn't make sense to him. But he loves story and allegory and myth and symbolism and sees something valuable in those on the level of experience. So both of them can be atheists. You can be an atheist rationalist or an atheist empiricist. But an empiricist is going to say if there is... For example, if a bunch of people are going to come and they're going to pray over you and the study shows that it actually helps, uh, we should still do it, even if there's no God, because the study showed that it helped, even if it's a placebo, you should still do the placebo. So they're much more willing to take in the science of experiment rather than just reason and logic, which would be the rationalist. What do you think? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally makes sense. But I want to back up just a moment because folks in the comments, maybe they're misunderstanding what I'm trying to say about things that you've said before, which is the idea that we're not saying that religion is the only place to have ritual. It's that religion has rituals that do certain things that don't seem to be well done elsewhere where society is wrapping their arms around it. So for instance, Britt, you've pointed at Rituals within religion will point us to um, having some sort of meditation with the moon or with uh, uh, essentially the the astronomy of, of what's out there in space. So to be aware of how small or how big you are compared to your inner and outer world and both the micro and macro world that's out there. Uh, ritual within religion points us to having forgiveness within our community. Yes, there are other places that do this, but not 
as well as religion does it. And if we get rid of religion, it's not that we have, it's not that we can't find rituals somewhere else. It's that can we find the rituals that religion has that point us to doing very important things that bind a society together, perpetuate tools and technology that religion does. And most of those are communal. Um, and I don't know that we do that well yet. So it's not yeah. just like, oh, you religion has ritual and Bill, Britt, you guys aren't paying any attention. There's ritual everywhere. Totally agree. Yeah. We're looking at what do religious rituals point you to yeah. and what are what are the mechanisms that they pass along that allow human beings to be good to each other and to work together and to um, to be focused in other places that don't come natural. So for instance, when when um, in religion, you are often pointed to forgiving others. And I don't know that that instruction is going to come easily in an atheist world. Um, not that you, you know, you might understand that people don't have free will and people are just a product of their time and they just did the best they could. But the actual meditation to kind of rid yourself of the inner turmoil of when somebody has wronged you, religion gives you a, a way in which to start moving in that direction. Um so I'll say that. And then in yeah. terms of rationalism and empiricism, I think it's both. And I think you got to have some common sense. I, I think you got to figure out which experiences aren't really doing much good for you. And they're a waste of time and energy. Mm. And I think you also have to realize sometimes using just rational thinking gets in the way and uh, certain acts, whether they seem to the rational mind to be productive or not, the experience actually does evidence that it is productive regardless. Yeah. Um, that was like our talk with Nick Jenkel, where he was like, Hey, I, I used to be just pure, you know, pure rationality living in London, you know, everybody's making fun of religion and then there, but there, then there's something missing in experience. There's something missing um, that's worth having in your life. Right. So you have to kind of balance those. Sometimes I feel like what you and I try to do is that if we're talking about um, objective reality, what's going on, we tend to go more towards rationalism. But if we're talking about our own experience, then we can talk about empiricism. So we can talk about this is how I experience awe, or this is how I experience love, or this is how it feels like to whatever. And we can talk about our experience our experience, but then we can also, when we're trying to put that experience into a bigger story, I think that's when we have to use rationalism or else we just project our own experience onto everyone else and not everybody else is having the same experience. Yeah. Um, man, I, I don't want to leave it quite yet. So the one more thing about the ritual, for instance, religious ritual does a very good job of getting us to think about everyone in the community and to serve together to help them. And as I've left Mormonism, I am much less prone. I'm going to have to intentionally go out and find some way to make the world a better place in public service. So for instance, volunteer at the local homeless shelter. But there isn't, any, there isn't anybody around me really pressing me to do that. And if we, if we let go of religious ritual without thinking about it, like, like you've said multiple times, I'm worried that we will be less kind in the world collectively unless we figure out how to pass that, pass that technology on. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think what we're realizing is that religion was carrying more than we thought it was. Because mm -hmm. at surface level, it's almost like, um, you know, if, if your four-year-old picks up a fake phone and says, hello, all of us adults, we know that that phone is not plugged in, but we all instinctually go, hello, oh, it's for you. Like we all play this little game, right? And it's doing something, like it's doing something for that kid. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I feel like atheists, you know, we're too quick to say, well, the phone's not plugged in. And it's like, I get it, the phone's not plugged in. But we're realizing how much mm -hmm. religion was doing. Like if, you, if you imagine a God, and you, which is your ideal, and you're working toward it, that may get you closer to your best self than if you never imagined there was a God. Just that process, right? Or the sacrament where you think about what you did that week. Or when you're talking about rituals, my first adopted daughter, we had I gathered all of my friends and family, and we had a ritual to bring this child who was born outside of the tribe into our tribe beautiful is the phone plugged into the wall no still something interesting going on and then for my last two adopted kids i didn't do one because i didn't really know how to do it how how do i if that's the ritual and i'm no longer invited into that sacred space then what am how do i do that same ritual and have all that friends and family put aside their saturday to come welcome this child in the same way so we just didn't do it and yeah, so I'm, I'm realizing more and more in the more studies that I see that religion was doing more for us psychologically than we realized. That doesn't mean that I'm in, that doesn't mean that I, you know, that I go back, but it means that there was more going on than I thought that mm. I want to be aware of. Totally. All right. So let's, all right. So we'll go through these last ones. So these last isms come up in modern conversations they're just ones that i picked out so they're not as interrelated and we'll try to go through these quick because i know we're running out of time so panpsychism all the rage right now anciently it's an old idea from early greek philosophers that there was an element of mind to everything that's physical today we would just use the word consciousness uh, you'll hear this especially from annika harris who discusses the possibility of panpsychism and what this belief is, is that consciousness is a fundamental character of the universe and that the lights are on for everything. So the sun is conscious and an asteroid is conscious and everything is conscious. The problem is it's not currently falsifiable. So if it, if it were true, the universe would still be acting the way that it's acting. And so we have no idea of testing this. So people talk about this, though, panpsychism um in places where you talk about consciousness the only thing i would say is that maybe again i wouldn't want to play in spaces where i can't have any evidence that something's true and playing in that space likely makes us better stewards of the planet makes us better caretakers of the planet and the life around it so maybe this sort of pretend view if you can convince yourself to sort of pretend it for instance i've got a a friend who uses crystals he knows they're not magic but he also knows that certain crystals are tied to certain uh, issues or emotions that one wants to try to work through. So he'll grab the crystal that is assigned to that and he'll meditate upon that purpose, knowing yeah. the crystal's not supernatural. He's using it as a tool. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's, you know, whatever, a catalyst or a tool to, to help him 
get somewhere in what he's trying to work through. If you can pretend in that way, you know, it's kind of like a, it's, it's a game you're playing inside your own head that everything is alive. I think you are more prone to treat the planet with more respect. Mm, interesting. All right. Next one. Taoism, which is one of our listeners really wanted to hear about this particular ism. So listener, this part is for you. Taoism, sometimes pronounced Taoism, D or T, it depends on how you're translating from Chinese, but it's becoming increasingly popular because of Star Wars. So the easiest way to describe this is that Yoda is a Taoist. Taoist is a Chinese philosophy, live simply, honesty, honestly, in harmony with nature, flow of life, and in balance, always in balance into the flow of life. So when Luke is teaching Ray about the force, and I can't use this clip because I don't want it to get flagged, but Luke is teaching Ray about the force and she's sitting in this meditative pose and Luke says, what do you see? And she says, the island, life, death, decay, feeds new life, warmth, cold, peace, violence. And between it all, balance, energy, a force. And inside you, inside me, that same force. So the yin-yang symbol, which is popular enough in America that you see it everywhere, um, is, is Taoism. And Star Wars specifically uh, was so interested in this philosophy. George Lucas was so interested in philosophy that he essentially made the Jedi's Taoists. Um, so it's kind of how we understand it. So in Star Wars, you would say it's the balance of the force. In Taoism, you would just say the balance of the Tao, the way. So the yin, which is the dark swirl, is shadow, feminine, chaos, creativity. The yang is the light swirl, masculinity, passion, growth, strength. So even if you go down to your local yoga studio, there'll be yin yoga, which is softer, easier. Yang yoga, which is like we're going to kick your butt yoga. And the purpose of Taoism is recognizing opposing forces and staying in the balance movement in between them. And so Taoism through Star Wars became so popular that in 2015, Jediism is now officialized, is now recognized as an official language, uh, an official religion, sorry, of the United States government. And so there are people who were so inspired by the Jedi life in Star Wars, this meditation and balance of the force and simple life of service that they took it to heart. And it is a religion that people practice in the United States, even knowing that there's no such thing as Jedis. They find that the way of life is compelling and it's Taoism, essentially. It's how we understand Taoism in America. You're not as into Star Wars as I am. <laughs> Probably <So. laughs> not. I was just looking up some uh, Tao quotes. And, you know, when you think of like the way Yoda speaks, where it kind of like wraps things up in circles and talks backwards. And it's all meant for you to like hear something that you've heard a thousand times, but hear it for the first time a new way. And I was just looking at some of these, you know, what is what is and what is not create each other. High and low rest on each other. First and mm -hmm. last follow each other. What's the difference between yes and no? What's the difference between beautiful and ugly? Heavy is the root of light. What should be shrunken must first be stretched. What should be weakened must first be strengthened. What should be abolished must first be cherished. It's all designed to get you to be, I think, really present, which again, secular Buddhism too, does too, but these Eastern religions are all connected to each other. Mm -hmm. Um they're, they're essentially different parts of the same family tree. And, and when I look at Taoism, 
it really is specific that you not, it, it does the same thing I said earlier. Like it never gets in there and names it. It tells you that the moment you name it, you know, you're not, it's not it. It's the finger pointing at the moon and you shouldn't mistake the finger pointing at the moon yeah. as the moon. Um, I, I like these Eastern wisdom traditions. I like Taoism. Um, but I also feel like I'm stuck never really getting into the meat of it. It's always mm. these ambiguous word games. Yeah. Cause they're, they're trying to help you find the space between, Oh, it seems like these are opposites, but are they really? So yeah. in, so in the yin yang, there's a little black dot in the white and there's a little white dot in the black because these two are not as far apart as you see, mm. as they seem. Yeah. And so you're right. They don't name it, which is why they call it the flow. Right. Yeah. So it's like, you know what, when you're in it, you're in the flow of life. What is it? What is what it? What is though? it? I can't tell you. Yeah. You, you'll know when you get, when you're, when you're yeah. in it, when you're in the flow. And then when you're out of flow, you, you've gone too far on, on these opposing forces and yeah. you need to balance it with the other side and come back. And then you're back yeah. into the flow. And so, yeah, it, it doesn't say what it is, but it, it points to it. It's trying to point you to it. Yeah. All right. Last five, and then we'll be done. Um, asceticism, A-S-C, asceticism, is severe self-discipline, avoidance of all forms of indulgence. So I see this happening in America, mostly in the exercise world. Christian asceticism used to be really popular. It's not popular anymore. It's you're much more likely to get prosperity gospel Christianity, which is the really opposite of asceticism. But if you know someone who does long periods of fasting, limit social media, strict diet, no sugar, alcohol, takes cold showers, exercises obsessively, it becomes an ism in that this is, this is how you're seeing life, right? This is how you're structuring your life. And so it puts aside pleasure in order to strengthen your discipline. And when you strengthen your discipline, you experience a kind of enlightenment or self-transcendence. So sometimes it mixes with religion. Um, often it mixes with just like, you know, a certain kind of exercise world in America. Yeah. The thing I would say here is the, the juxtaposition between indulgence and restraint, right? Like you should live the fullest, most happiest, joyful life possible. And you shouldn't. And those are both true, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the idea that when you are constantly looking for more, you feel like you have less. Yeah, See, I'm, doing this, I'm doing Taoism right yeah, now. If you're constantly looking to be comfortable and happy, you'll be miserable. Like you have to be okay with the way things are. But I also, I want to, but that balance means I don't turn away when fun things come into my space. And I'm not going to go chasing fun things, right? And and there are people who say like, no, you should, you know, you should uh, turn away. You know, again, this idea, what did it say there at the beginning of that? It, um, uh, asceticism, avoid, severe discipline, avoidance, yeah. all forms of indulgence. Like you shouldn't, you know, um, I'll be vulgar here, but you know, if, if an orgy shows up in my front room and they're inviting me in, like, do I, do I go, no, no, no. Like on some level, we ought to take in the, pleasure and the joy that's can be had for our life yeah and so if somebody gives you free tickets to the to the circus or free tickets to the to the carnival 
do you go, well, no, I, I just got to turn away all this uh, stuff. I can't, yeah. can't be indulging. Mm-hmm. That, that makes no sense. Like there is this Buddha, Buddha would agree with you. So Buddha started out as an ascetic and he was fasting and he was skin and bone. And if you go to the East, there'll be, there'll be statues of him in Thailand where he's just starving. And then the story goes that he heard someone playing music and the string was strung so tight that when they tried to play it, the string broke and he realized, Oh, I'm the string and I'm stretching myself so tight that I'm going to break. And then he developed the middle path, which is what you're talking about. He didn't mention the living room scenario specifically. Yeah. Yeah. But that there's no need to do that. Yeah. There's, there's no, there's a middle way where you can have some pleasure, but not become so obsessed with pleasure that it makes you miserable because you're always chasing it. Yeah. If your focus is to turn away the pleasure that falls in your lap, like, Go to the circus, go to the carnival. Like you got free mm. tickets. Mm. You're you're just making yourself miserable not doing the things that are you have a chance to do. Yeah. All right. Hedonism is kind Sorry. of no, we're gonna swing the other way here. So okay. hedonism is like you're going all in on pleasure. Oh. So yeah. it's the opposite of asceticism. So hedonism is hey, we're basically creatures that are built to avoid pain and pursue pleasure. So we might as well just do that. So that doesn't mean, though, even for hedonists, that doesn't mean I'm only going to have sex and do heroin because that actually is the end of that road is not pleasure, right? To continually do that is not pleasure. If you keep eating until it hurts, it's not pleasure. Like eating until you're full is more pleasurable than eating until you throw up, right? And so people who are hedonist will say, okay, given all of that, you know, seems like being married gives you a built-in safety net. You know, my husband's taken care of me all week with this knee surgery. That seems like a good thing. Being 600 pounds, that doesn't look pleasurable. So I'll eat as pleasurable as I can while remaining relatively healthy, you know, and you essentially are building your life to maximize pleasure as much as possible. And that's the philosophy of life. What do you think about that? Yeah. Um, I, I, again, I'm much more for the Buddhist approach, which seems to be the middle ground. The earth is, or the planet, the, 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 your awareness, things that are happening, it's all unfolding right in front of you. It's going to be comfortable and uncomfortable. The sooner you can just sit with it as it is, then the comfort becomes much more balanced and it's not, it's not misery and bliss yeah. back and forth. It's, it's just life. I also think there's a difference between like the pleasure of the moment and also like how you view your life. So like having children, anyone when will tell you your actual like day to day measure of pleasure, those first few years when the kids are little, it takes a hit. Like you're not experiencing pleasure. Like it went down quite a bit. Um, But you do it because the meaning of your life went up quite a bit and you trust that that'll swing itself out eventually. So I do think that you have to, I, I don't think it's enough to just pleasure of the moment. I think you also have to think about your overall life because the, to me, the most unpleasurable thing would be to be on your deathbed and have a lot of regrets. I would have done that totally different. You know what I mean? I had no meaning or purpose of my life and I'm just going to die. 
So I think that has to be part of it too. And hedonism doesn't really care about that. It's more just like we're pleasure seeking creatures. Let's just build that into the system. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't like either of these extremes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So materialism, nothing exists except matter and its movements. Everything is matter. Um, we're just the total sum of our DNA. Um, even, even the idea of consciousness is, is explained through matter. So if you're a scientist in certain scientific fields, there'll be a higher chance that you are a materialist, which is everything can be explained by matter and whatever matter is doing. And they would be probably more willing to say that consciousness arises from matter. How they, how anyone gets there is, is still too mysterious, but really just what exists is matter. Hmm. Yeah. It, it, everything is physical. Even like, even the way your brain works in terms of a memory or a thought is electrons and neurons and neural pathways. And so do you believe that physical. eventually even things that are mysterious, like consciousness will be able to be explained by materialism? Man, I've heard the science propose that it, that we could get to a point where we could in theory, plug all the information into a computer and work time backwards. Like once yeah. you, once you understand there's no free will and you know where things are at this moment, you, there's always the potential to work backwards and start reversing, mm -hmm. at least visually reversing it to see how it all played out. Um, but that seems so out there, yeah. borderline insanity to kind of the think. The first it thing that, that I thought of is like, a murderer in court and we just rewind the tape to see yeah. like, okay, how bad was this murder really? Yeah. Or like, how culpable are you really? Yeah. And you just rewind the tape. That'd be interesting. The, the trouble is the moment you could actually do that and it works, you would be acknowledging those there's no free will. And hence, why are you punishing him for doing the only thing he could have done? Yeah. I don't think we're ready for like that shift in morality. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we're materialism, Mm, you know, I, I think there's, maybe. yeah, maybe, but I've got some reservations. Okay. All right. Determinism, which we talked about with our free will episode, the idea that all events are determined. Um, so at any point you could have, if you could play back the movie from that point, it would have played the same way. Yeah, um, totally. I think that. Which we both lean towards that way, even after our, podcast um on free will which if you haven't checked out you'll have to check out by the way we got some wonderful comments on that podcast someone said you know what bill and Britt are not we said at the beginning we are not free will philosophers we are not um professionals but right. that they found our explanations to be very helpful and reasonable so that was very nice that was very nice because it's a hard we we spent some time diving into that rabbit hole and it was it's it gets very complex very quickly yeah so that's I'm, very I'm nice definitely determinism you. i'm definitely because it, it is the idea that there is no free will so i'm all for that yeah all right last one stoicism and i reached out to the guy who is making this popular again his name is ryan holiday um stoicism very popular right now there's a young guy named ryan holiday um on he's an influencer so on all the things who does something called the daily stoic 
and uh, it come and he's kind of teaching this and people are really picking it up and really um, applying this as the principle that organized the organizes their life. So it comes from, it's a third century philosophy made popular by Marcus Aurelius. And we should in the future review his book, Meditations, um, which a lot of the people that you and I listen to really recommend that book. So mm -hmm. there's four virtues in Stoicism, courage, temperance, justice, and wisdom. Stoics live by the phrase momentum, momentum mori, remember that you will die, which I love. And it's remembering that because it, it's remembering every day that you will die that focuses you on today and the moment and what you want to do with it right now. Stoics are very suspicious of emotions. They just notice the emotion, but they decide what to do with it, make a correct choice and move on. So in popular culture, if someone says, oh, that person is very stoic, it's kind of come to mean that that person isn't very emotional or that they don't show any emotion. In fact, um, in some of the stoic texts, it'll be like someone will tell someone, oh, this, this person just died. And the stoic response is, well, yeah, people die. All right, <laughs> you know, moving on. So a Stoic lives well through having good character and death is the final test of it. While everyone's death is a little bit different, the Stoics believed that a good death would be characterized by mental tranquility, a lack of complaining and gratitude for the life that you've been given. Marcus Aurelius says you have power over your own mind. Realize this and you will find strength. So Tom Brady, Tim Ferriss, Anna Kendrick, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Bill Belichick, these are modern Stoics. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, inspired by Stoics. Um, and it's really just about not getting too wrapped up into your emotions and focusing on living a virtuous life so that you have no regrets on your deathbed, that kind of thing. Not too up, not too down. And then going back just for a second to determinism, it's yeah. weird because in the same scientific realm as there's no free will, everything's determined, you rewind the tape back and it plays out the exact same way. Some of those same sorts of brains are also in the mindset that there could be parallel universes where there's another Brittany Hartley who's doing something very different, which seems to deeply contradict, again, yeah. the idea that there is free will or isn't free will and that you would be doing something different in a parallel universe. Like in a parallel universe- I'd be, play I'd be playing soccer in the World Cup instead of- Right. <laughs> and so that just seems strange to me that there are really brilliant minds in the same head space yeah. who seem to posit both theories. It's like we can't resist we can't resist the pull of magic. You know? Yeah. We just we just can't resist the stories. The story that there's a Brittany who just, you know, at each crossroad just took a different crossroad and yeah. so has a totally different universe. Yeah. It's such a cool story that it's like we're just we're we're much better storytellers than we are rational thinkers of what's going on in the universe and that's just clear across the board right yeah and my final thought on stoicism is like i tried to get into it i tried to read on it it's just the most boring ism <laughs> on the planet it's very focused i feel like i feel like it's one of those ones that's maybe this maybe i should and no this is okay to say it may it, this may not be politically correct, but I feel like it's very helpful for young men who are looking for some discipline and structure and aren't getting it. Yeah. And so um, 
even like, you know, Bill Belichick and Tom Brady, and they'll, they'll have these like stoic quotes and, and they'll have it, try to have it be part of, you know, the, the team environment or whatever. There's a certain amount of, of, of discipline that comes with being a stoic um, and really understanding your mind, really being as intentional as you can with your choices, really focusing on virtues, being super aware that you're going to die. And I, I think for some people who need, who are especially the young men who just, I, I need some discipline. I need something to order my life. I think it can be really helpful for that. The Stoics are never the life of the party. So probably not. No. So yeah, probably not. Not a fan. Okay. Hedonists parties would probably be the most fun, to be honest. All right. Yeah. Very last one. I forgot about this one. Transhumanism. I want to know what you think about this one. So mm, this like is this the one. this is the philosophical and scientific movement that says that in order to we have all these problems, right? Oops, that was my crutches. We have all these problems. The best way that we're going to solve it is to augment human capability and improve the human condition. So basically, they're on board with the idea that we can become gods and create a utopia. But what's going to get us there is technology and gene splicing and cloning and all these up and and conquering cyborgs and robotics cyborgs and, yeah. and curing cancer and living a thousand years and all of that. So what's really interesting is I did present a paper once at the transhumanist community. Um, and there are a lot of active Mormons, but especially post Mormons that end up here because it's the same vision of like, let's build Zion. But instead of like temple ordinances, it's like, technology is going to solve this technology is the only thing that can solve this and so it goes all in on what science can do to improve the human condition and that's how we're going to solve these problems yeah part of the idea that goes with this is prolonging human life right like take the yes. take the brain out of the person and put it into a robot and now the, it's still the person some of it's like really religious sounding like become immortal create utopia become like a god and it's like but technology, yeah. <laughs> not scriptures, technology. My biggest hiccup with this is that all progress, all evolution, all moving towards better ideas involves not, not everyone changing their mind. That actually is one of the least effective ways. It's everyone dying and then a whole nother group of people with new ideas already, already at yeah. their experiential level. And so to have, I mean, do you, I heard, I think it was, I don't know, what's a comedian or some philosopher, somebody was making the argument that, do you really want people from the 15th century living forever? Yeah. And you don't. Yeah. You just don't. E so Elon Musk said the same thing. Someone asked maybe him, it was like, Elon can, Musk can we, can we live? I, I didn't hear the 15th century thing, but someone asked him like, can we really, how long can we really live? Like, what's the science? And he's like, I don't want people to live longer. No. If you are 90 die so that the 20 year olds can change the world. And he was like very clear, like, He's not as much science as he gets into and money he can pour into things. He's not at all interested in prolonging human life. Yeah, the fact no, that there's no. a 95 year old prophet leading an organization terrifies him. <laughs> he does not want that. All right. So the last thing that we have to talk about is just, should we associate with isms? So this is when I was a teenager, one of my favorite movies was Ferris Bueller's day off. And the quote that he says in it, he, the quote that he says is, he says, uh, not that I condone fascism or anyism for that matter. 
isms, in my opinion, are not good. A person should not believe in an ism. He should believe in himself. I quote John Lennon. I don't believe in the Beatles. I just believe in me. Good point there. After all, he was the walrus. I could be the walrus. But at e And then I think he says, I could be the walrus, but I'd still have to bum a ride to school or something like that. So it's this cute little Ferris Bueller quote that I, that I remember. It was my favorite movie growing up. And so what do you think about when, when someone asks you about your beliefs, Bill, do you think it's helpful to use some of these isms to try to create a language to explain where you're at? Is it, is it too problematic to try to put who you are as a person into these isms? What do you think about that? Yeah. Labels like language is this imperfect way to tell another person what's going on in our inner world. And even if both parties understand the same words in similar ways, there's always misunderstanding. So I think it's both useful because when you say like, Hey, here's my box that I'm in, in this part of the conversation that we're talking about, the person can now relate and connect and there's going to be misunderstanding. So it also fails and has flaws to it. So I think it's both. Yeah. I personally am comfortable using some of these labels. Atheist, for instance, I think gets across a point in a conversation when, when people are sharing with each other, whether they believe there's a God or not or not. But if I don't have enough room to talk about the creative energy of the universe, they're going to also misunderstand me. Totally. Yeah. They're, they're going to misunderstand your, the depth of your spirituality and all of the universe. If you just say I'm an atheist. So language is always tricky. It's, it's, it's a tool, but it, it can also be a trap. So uh, yeah, I can't say, I can't say either way if, if it's good or not good to use them because they're just tools and you just have to be aware of, of what you're trying to do with them because words, like you say, are just really tricky, but it's really interesting to just kind of take a bird's eye view and just say, okay, how are other people viewing the world? And like you said at the beginning, like there's a lot of good points in here. There's a lot of good gems. There's a lot of value in, in all these different kind of ways of looking at the world. I connect or hold some truth within probably 90% of them. Yeah. I think, I think the one that's my favorite is like, if someone really knows their isms is just absurdism because then they'll yeah. know, I understand life is absurd, but I still want to, I still want to play this game because it's fun. You know, that, that's, that's probably my favorite ism. If I were to, you know, try to start a conversation with someone where I'm trying totally. to describe myself. Totally. I like that one. But then even with that one, you know, I spend so much time studying religions that you would totally miss that about me if I didn't have a chance to explain that yeah. there's other things that I appreciate. And yep, you're never going to be totally at home in one of these isms because people are too complex for that. But hopefully yeah. our listeners got some new isms to think about or consider or look at or research or, oh, that... I, we had a couple of people who were listening who said, oh, I think that describes me. I think I'm a Taoist or whatever it was. And so I hope it just gives us some more language to explain whatever's going on with how you see the world and how we can talk to other humans about how we see the world. Love it. Great episode, Britt. Good job. Really cool. So for those of you who are listening, this was a two hour episode, but I promise you guys, I looked through all of podcast land because Bill and I will send each other podcasts before a podcast um, just to be up on the conversation. 
And there is no other podcast that goes through all of these isms like I just did. So this is premium content. And if you appreciate it, please let us know by Bill going to almostawakened.org. Click the donate button. Send us a few bucks. We love recurring donations, $5 a month, 10 bucks a month, whatever you can do. We really deeply appreciate uh, the donations. Uh, Britt um, puts a lot of time and effort, such as today's episode, and it's a way to to show her a thank you for, for all the work that goes into these. But Britt, thanks so much for putting it together. Awesome. And then next week we have Jana on. We're going to be discussing the movie mm. Stuts. So if you want to follow along with us um, this week, your homework would be to watch the Netflix. Netflix, right? Netflix. I think so show um s-t-u-t-z stuts mm. and we'll be the three of us will be discussing it so that that's your Love homework it. for for next week's episode and thanks bill and thanks everybody who followed along for a little bit longer than usual podcast but hopefully worth it have a great day everybody all right bye this has been another almost awakened episode check us out at almostawakened.org where you can check out past episodes make a donation to keep this podcast running Email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman.